9. And left my doctor reign in the school playground, where boys of all sorts and sizes, from 10 to 14, were congregated, newly arrived from home and holidays, and while they waited for the tea bell, were inspecting the new boys. Oh, Paul, what a jolly name, Paul Pry, Paul Parrot, Polly put the kettle on, well, Polly, and where do you come from, let him alone, Briggs, said the school captain a pleasant-faced, tall boy, Dr. Rain asked me to look after him a bit, I say, though, young un, call yourself, Fife, that's quite enough, we don't have Christian names here, you know, well, Christy, you needn't punch my head, I don't want to harm the infant, cried Briggs, he can tell me where he comes from, anyhow can't you, new kid, I lived at Fort Cademan, in the Shan States Burma, you know, and what can you do, play football and cricket, no, I have not really played them, but I want to, there were no white boys besides me, but I can shoot, and ride, and row, and fence, and throw darts, a group of boys had gathered round little Paul tried not to feel shy, where did you row, asked one, was there a river, not near, but there was a big lake like a sea the Inthas live there, they are called lake dwellers, and their huts stand on the top of the water Uncle Ferrers took me to their huts sometimes, the Inthas row so funnily, partly with their legs, they can row, oh, so fast, and fish, and hold an umbrella, all at the same time, oh, I say, that must be a cram, anyhow, tell the infant he must not tell lies, Christy, I don't, and I won't tell you things if you say that, and the child drew himself up haughtily and turned away, clenching his small brown fists, it is a shame, you chaps, said Christy, I know he has come from some queer place in Burma, did you see his hair, said Thame, it's as black as a coal, and just in one place is a white streak he is a regular magpie, hurrah, there's the tea bell, oh, I have heard my mother say someone she knew had a lock of white hair it looks rather jolly, rejoined Christy, I say, little piebald, don't mind our ragging, I'm awfully hungry, and I dare say you are, there is cold beef always for tea first night of term worth having, I can tell you, come along with me, and I will show you where to sit, Paul soon began to feel more at home as a small unit in the hundred boys at Oakwood, wonderful at mathematics and no idea of classics was the verdict of the masters, but can talk Gramuki and Pashtun dialects like a native, no good at football and cricket, but promises well, said the boys, and can climb and jump anything, and use his fists, too, ten days had passed, and Dr. Rain, at work in his library, was disturbed by a knock, and the matron entered, I am sorry to interrupt you, sir, but it is about that new little boy, Paul Fife, I cannot get him to eat his dinner properly, he seems hungry at first, and then leaves off later, I look at his plate and it is cleared. I find from some of the boys that he puts the greater part of the meat in his pocket, and, I suppose, throws it away. I thought I had better come to you. Certainly, send Fife to me. A timid step. And the small boy came shyly and come here. Little man, the doctor called, pleasantly. I want to talk to you. You are not too big to get on my knee. No, I thought not. You see, you are one of my little boys now and we all want to be as happy as possible, you are very thin, do they give you enough to eat, oh, yes, sir, the child pressed his hands nervously together, and you like what you get, I hope, 
We have not Burmese and Indian cooks, you know. Yes, I like it all. Thank you. And yet Miss Owen tells me you do not eat your dinner. But pocket it I hope you don't waste and throw away good food. Paul. Mumber sir indeed. Mumber the boy looked up earnestly. Then see that it doesn't happen again. For I don't want to punish you. Oh. What shall I do what shall I do? And to the astonishment of the doctor. The child covered his face. And his whole body shook with sobs. Control yourself. Dear boy. No. I cannot allow such crying. You will make yourself ill. That is better. Now tell me anything in confidence. And I will see what can be done. With an effort Paul gradually quieted. And then said. Yes. I will tell you. Please please. I didn't mean to be naughty. But I do love Bo so much. It is my dog. You saw him. And Uncle Ferrers took him away. I don't know how he got loose. But several days ago he came running up to me in the cricket field he was so thin. And his ear was torn I was eating my lunch bun. And I gave him all I had left. He just gobbled it. When some of the fellows came up. I sent Bo off. And he ran into the wood. But each day I whistle. When I can get by myself. And he comes. He is thinner than ever. So now I eat only part of my dinner even if I am hungry. But I save nearly all the meat for Bo. He is the oldest friend I have. For Uncle Ferrer says he came with me. He looks often as though he could speak and tell me whose little boy I used to be. Please, sir, I can do quite well with half a dinner. If he may have the other. Dr. Rain stroked the smooth, dark head, deeply touched by the boy's story. There, he said, come with me, and let us see about this dog. So hand in hand child and master passed through the big school buildings, and out towards the breeze swept cricket ground. It is a curious name for your dog, said the doctor, how do you spell it? B-E-A-U, oh, member sir, or B-O-H it is Burmese. It means, head warrior, or chief fighting man. Uncle Ferrer Sikhs and Patan soldiers called him that, because whenever he fought with the pie dogs or other dogs, though all was one, may I call Bo now, for they had reached the high ridge near the wood, yes, I only hope he is still there, Bo, Bo, the clear voice shouted, and then followed endearing words of eastern dialect, a few seconds, and a joyful bark announced the delighted animal, who leapt up rapturously, his paws on the shoulders of his little master, the boy's eyes shone as he raised them to Dr. Rain, fearlessly, but the voice trembled as he urged, if I might just see him now and then, we should neither of us mind so much, you shall, I will see to it, now, bring Bill round to the stables, and John shall find him a kennel and a good dinner, there, there, I didn't want so many thanks, dear boy, I wish I had thought of it before, now, off to your form master, and I shall expect no more complaints from Miss Owen, so Bo also became a member of Oakwood, and a letter was dispatched at once to Captain Ferrers relieving his mind as to the missing dog, who had found his way through so many miles of a known country safe to his happy owner, concluded on page 90, wonderful caverns, I, I, I the mammoth cave, in the state of Kentucky, in the United States, not far from Louisville, is a table land formed of limestone, perforated with holes like a sponge, down which rain rushes with great force, far below run rivers, and there are also still, deep lakes partially fed by the water from above, and, as might have been expected, here also are the most wonderful caverns in the world, it is said that to explore all the halls and galleries communicating with each other, and connected with the mammoth cave alone, 
it would be necessary to walk or climb 150 miles. This may well be believed when we hear that the cave contains 57 domes, 11 lakes, 7 rivers, 8 cataracts, and 256 avenues, besides 32 pits or abysses, and a Gothic church. The great mammoth dome is over 400 feet high, and light comes in from above through holes which, at such a height, look like stars shining in a dark sky. One of the chief lakes is called the Dead Sea, from its stillness and gloom, and when light is flashed over it from above it is wonderfully impressive, with its surrounding fringe of gleaming stalactites. A terrible abyss is known as the bottomless pit, the depths of which have never been sounded. On one of its sides rises a huge crystallization in the form of a spinning chair, which gleams out from the surrounding blackness, and is called the Devil's Chair. This appalling chasm is credited with various terrible tales. One is of two young lovers who hid in the mammoth cave, but finding themselves pursued, tied themselves together with the girdle's girdle, and jumped into the abyss. However misguided and foolish we may think these young folk, we can have nothing but pity for to run away slaves from Alabama, who, after horrible sufferings and privations in the swamps and forests, hoped to have found a resting place in the great cavern. Alas for their hopes, before long they heard the voices of their pursuers, the cracking of their heavy whips, the baying of the bloodhounds which had tracked them to their refuge, further and further they retreated in the darkness, only to hear the dreadful sounds draw nearer and nearer, until they found that they could go no further, as they had arrived at a small rocky platform overhanging the bottomless pit, before was certain death, though it was hidden in the horrors of mystery and darkness. Behind word are the terrors of a death of protracted agony, as a warning to other fugitive slaves, one second's hesitation, and then, as their captors reached out to seize their prey, the despairing men leapt from the rock into the awful pit, one very singular cave is known as the church, and is curiously like the crypt of an English cathedral, such as Gloucester or Canterbury, it is very nearly the same size as the latter. Here stalactites and stalagmites of colossal size have joined to form pillars, united by Norman arches, with wonderful effect. Religious services have often been held in this veritable temple not made with hands. Indian mummies have been met with in parts of the cavern, proving that it was known to native tribes in past ages. The skeleton of a mastodon, an extinct form of elephant, stands in one of the great halls, and a few live creatures still inhabit the gloomy depths. A cave rat as large as a rabbit was caught, which, although it had very bright eyes, was quite blind when taken from the cave, but after a month's experience of daylight it gradually began to make use of its eyes. Various kinds of eyeless fish and crabs lived in the dark waters, and a live frog was seen wearing an unhappy expression of countenance. The slow rate at which stalagmites grow has been tested in this cavern by a lantern which was dropped in 1812 and found cemented to the floor in 1843, since which its upward progress has been carefully watched. The mammoth cave contains immense quantities of nitre. During the great American Civil War, most of that used was found here, and as gunpowder contains two-thirds of nitre to all its other ingredients, these caverns were of great value to the nation. The Mammoth Cave is now private property, belonging to Dr. John Krogan, who gave $10,000 for it. Helena Heath, the boy tramp, continued from page 76, chapter X beyond the meadow lay a field of wheat, tall and yellow, although not yet quite ripe for the sickle, stooping until my hands almost touched the ground, I ran as fast as possible under the shelter of the friendly hedge, until, 
Reaching the cornfield, I scrambled through another hedge, and lay down on my face amidst the wheat. But still it was impossible to feel in the slightest degree safe, the road being only a few yards distant, while I distinctly heard the sound of approaching wheels. If it had not been for the bend in the lane, I should scarcely have been able to delay capture many minutes, and even as it was, I lay quaking while I wondered whether Mr. Turton would be able to see me from the road. The cab passed my hiding place, however, so that I began to hope it might not be going to stop, until on the point of rising, I heard the horse fold up, heard the door open, and recognized Mr. Turton's voice as he told Augustus to alight. The boy must be hiding somewhere hereabouts, he exclaimed. He might easily have got into that wood, said Augustus, and I regretted that in my haste I had not taken to the wood on the other side of the road. While Augustus and his father must have gone to inspect the woods, I heard the sound of an approaching motor car, and guessed that it had stopped close to the cab on the other side of the hedge. I lay on my face with the thick wheat growing high all around, my eyes raised to the hedge, above which I could see the top of a man's straw hat. I supposed that his motor car had broken down, but at any rate, his companion alighted and came onto the raised path, so that I could see her head and face. She looked about my own age, although she must have been unusually tall, young as she was. She wore a thick veil, which she had turned back under the brim of her white hat. A quantity of fair hair hung loose, and she had dark, rather mischievous, but friendly-looking eyes. The next moment I heard Mr. Turton and Augustus returning from the wood, to inquire whether the driver of the motor car had seen anyone answering to my description, for the car had been coming to meet the cab, as if the driver were making for Polampton. A boy of about fifteen, said Mr. Turton, as they all drew nearer to the hedge. I saw him I am almost certain it was he about this spot. Then I lost him in the bend of the lane, and I thought it was possible that you might have seen him running to meet you. I don't remember seeing a boy, was the answer, but then, this wretched car is enough to occupy all my attention. Did you see a boy, Jason? Th he added, Mumber Uncle, she answered, and I thought what a strange name it was one which I certainly had not heard before. Has he run away from school? She asked, with obvious interest, the next moment. Yes, said Mr. Turton. While I could imagine Augustus's snigger, he has caused me an immense deal of trouble, and I am extremely anxious to take him back with me extremely anxious. While I lay in the wheat, able to see the tops of their heads as they moved closer to the hedge, it did not seem altogether improbable that Mr. Turton would gain his wish, and while he was still discussing me with the driver of the motor car, whom Jason the head addressed as uncle, the girl came quite close to the hedge, turning to look at the ripening corn, as my eyes were appraised, they looked straight into hers, which seemed to hold them as if I were fascinated, now, I thought, everything is over with me, I had not realized that I could be so easily seen by anyone looking down into the field from the higher path, Jason was evidently startled, she stepped abruptly backwards, as I supposed, to tell Mr. Turton that she had found the object of his search, I was already making up my mind how to act, Mr. Turton was unlikely to be a very swift runner, while I knew that I could give Augustus a pretty good start, the moment Jason came back to the hedge to point out my hiding place I determined to rise from the ground, dart towards the adjoining field where the sheep were pastured, and taking a line across country, at the worst I would lead them all a good chase before I gave in, a second later, though it seemed a long second in my suspense, 
Jason the returned to the hedge and again looked down into my upturned face. Gradually her lips parted in a smile, and then my heart began to thump against my ribs, for I knew that she was not going to betray me. As I smiled back in my relief, she nodded her head ever so slightly, and turning, walked away from the hedge. Why don't you drive on to Barton? She cried, raising her voice. I supposed, for my especial benefit, Barton, how far is that? Asked Mr. Turton. Five miles, isn't it, Uncle? She answered, five and a half. He said, you keep bearing to your right. But, suggested Augustus, I feel certain Everard disappeared about here. Is that his name? Asked Jason. Yes, Jack Everard. Perhaps he has gone down through a trap door, said Jason with a laugh. And Augustus sniggered in return. How I wished there had only been Augustus to deal with, with perhaps Jason to look on during the process. But it would not have been his boots that I should have blacked. Uncle, cried Jason. Do you remember the steep lane we passed on our left? That would be on your right, she added, evidently turning to Mr. Turton. What about it? he asked. There was a finger post which said, Pathway to Barton. If they were to take that path don't you think they would get to Barton more quickly? Why, yes, of course, was the answer. Then, said Mr. Turton, if we follow the road, we might be able to intercept the boy. I am very much obliged to this young lady, but in case you should see him after all, he continued, allow me to give you this card. If you could manage to detain him while you communicate with me at Castlemore you would confer the greatest favor. I could not catch the answer. But a few minutes later, I heard the cab door shut and knew that Mr. Turton and Augustus, thanks to Jason, had been driven off in the direction of Barton, five and a half miles distant, so that they would have eleven miles to drive before they returned to this spot, leaving me at least two hours reckoning for the search at Barton and so forth to make good my escape. In the meantime the motor car still continued to make strange noises, and every now and then its owner gave vent to curious exclamations. Don't you think? suggested Jason that it would be best to try to get as far as the farriers we passed opposite the footpath to Barton. Upon my word, I almost think it would, was the answer. Come, suppose you take your seat. Oh, cried Jason that but if you don't mind I think I would sooner walk it is not far, you know. So a few moments later the motor car made stranger noises than ever and moved away, evidently with difficulty. And when it had gone a little distance Jason came to the hedge again. It's all right now, she cried, and rising I came to the edge of the field. I am most awfully obliged to you, I said. What made you run away? She asked eagerly. I was not going to stand all that, I answered. All what? She asked. I don't think I had better stay, I said, because they might change their minds and come back. But Jason shook her head. I don't think they will. She answered, because I heard him tell the driver to go to Barton. What shall you do? She asked. I shall go to the left as they have gone to the right. I wish we could give you a lift. She cried. Where are you going? I inquired. You see, she explained. I really live in London. Only I am staying now with my uncle and aunt. I always come to stay with them in the summer. Do you live near here? Why? She returned. We have come miles and miles this morning. My uncle has just bought a motor car a beauty. We started quite early soon after seven, and it began to rain just before, so my aunt wouldn't come. We were going to Polempton, and we have broken down lots of times. 
though we get along splendidly in between. I slept at Polemkong last night. I said, where are you going? She asked, to London. Why didn't you take the train? Inquired Jason. You see I had no money. I explained. I sold my watch and chain. But a tramp robbed me. Where do your people live in London? She asked. I have no people. Oh, I am sorry. She exclaimed. What are you going to do? Well, I said, I don't quite know till I get there. Jacintha's face grew very solemn. I wish I could tell uncle. She said, you know he is most awfully nice. Only I am afraid he might put you in the motor car and drive after the cab. We could catch it easily if we tried. Yes, of course. I answered. Uncle will be wondering why I am so long. She continued. I expect we shall go straight back now the motor car has gone wrong. Where to? I inquired. From sheer curiosity to learn as much about her as possible. Uncle lives at Colbrook Park. She answered. Where is that? About a mile this side of Hazelton. She said. On the point of going away. I do hope those people won't catch you. She continued. And that you will reach London all right. Though it doesn't seem much use if you haven't got any people. I never knew anyone who had run away before. She added. Regarding me with evident interest. And with that to my great regret Jason to walked away. Thank you ever so much. I cried. And then in order to see the last of her. I came round into the road. Standing on the path watching until a bend took her out of sight. Even then I did not at once set out on my journey. But. Having taken the precaution to bring some bread and cheese in my pocket. I sat down to eat it. Near the spot where Jason the had recently stood. When I saw something shining on the path. Taking it in my hand. I found that it was a heart-shaped locket, which doubtless belonged to Jacintha. I imagined that she had worn it suspended from a chain round her neck, that it had caught in one of the twigs of the hedge and been broken off when she started back in astonishment on first seeing me lying amidst the corn, ignoring any possible risk from her uncle. I now thought only of returning the locket, and accordingly set forth at a run, nor stopped until I reached the farrier's shop, opposite the footpath to Barton. Then I saw it. To my extreme disappointment, no sign of a motor car before the door, continued on page 94, a story of Stanley, Sir H.M. Stanley, the famous African explorer, once had a strange and unpleasant experience, from which he was saved by his presence of mind and readiness of resource, he was traveling in Africa, and had to stay some time at a village, the people here were extremely ignorant and superstitious and quite unused to the ways of white men. After a time some of them noticed him making entries in his notebook for this was new country to him, and it was important that he should remember what he saw and not understanding what he was doing they jumped to the conclusion that he was bewitching them in some mysterious way. This report spread all over the village, and a crowd of about 500 savages collected, and threatened to kill the explorer at once unless he destroyed the book. Stanley was, naturally, very unwilling to give up all the notes which had cost him so much trouble and danger to collect, but on the other hand it would be very much worse to lose his life. Suddenly he had a bright idea, he happened to have with him a volume of Shakespeare's plays, he thought that in all probability the savages would not know one book from another, so he offered it to them instead of his notebook. The natives were quite taken in, they accepted the Shakespeare, and, amid much rejoicing, burned it to ashes thus breaking, as they thought, the spell that Stanley had cast upon them, the captain's cigar, the ship was on fire, the boats were lowered, 
and were quickly filled by the terrified passengers and crew. Amid the general excitement, the captain alone remained cool and collected, and when the time came for him to follow the others, he did a very curious thing, before descending the ladder into the boat, he shouted to his sailors, hold on for a minute, then he drew a cigar from his pocket, and deliberately lighted it with a scrap of the burning rope which lay close by, this done, he went down steadily and slowly, and ordered his men to push off, one of the passengers asked him afterwards, how could you stop at such a moment to light a cigar, because, replied the captain, it seemed to me that unless I did something to divert the minds of the people in the boat, there would probably be a panic, then the boat would have been upset, for, as you know, it was overcrowded, my seemingly strange act attracted your attention, watching me, you forgot your fright and your own danger for the moment, and so we got off in safety, apparent folly is sometimes wisdom in disguise, e.d. the puff adder, the puff adder is the most common, as well as the most deadly, of African snakes, it is generally about four feet long, the evil looking head is broad and flat, while the body, which is as thick as a man's arm, tapers very suddenly towards the tail, the puff adder is of a uniform brown color, checked with bars of darker brown and white, it is slow and torpid in all its movements, and is peculiarly dangerous from its habit of lying half buried in the sandy track, not caring to move out of the way of passers-by, as other snakes generally do, still, if not molested or trodden upon, it does not attack man, if any unfortunate creature, however, should be bitten by this reptile, death occurs in a few hours, when irritated or alarmed, this snake has the power of swelling out the whole body, from which fact it derives its popular name, McLeod of Ciliari, concluded from page 83, III, it was sports day at Oakwood School, a glorious 18th of June, guests were gathering from near and far, and every lodging and primitive inn in the neighboring villages was reaping a harvest from the invasion of relatives and friends of boys past and present, on the school tower, a landmark for miles, the house flag and the Union Jack floated proudly. The hundred boys looked a goodly sight below. Clad alike in white with varying racing colors in broad sashes and ties. It was Paul Fife's third term. And he had just been welcoming Captain Ferrers. I must go directly. Said the boy. I am in the sack race for boys under twelve. I must tie Bo up first. Or he will come rushing after me and spoil my chance. Alert and active. Paul hurried off and Captain Ferrers joined Dr. Rain. So glad you think we are taking care of him, said the doctor. He is a favorite with us all, not quite a typical English boy yet, though. I am glad to see so many old boys here today, and parents too. Bless me. There's General McLeod of Clare. I have not seen him for years. It must bring back many sad memories. His son was here years ago. A splendid fellow his death was a terrible blow and Dr. Rain went off to speak to his old friend, the bell rang for the sack race, and there was a general movement to the starting post, where the eight small boys in for the final word are standing, each tied up to the neck in his sack, ready for the start, the old general was keenly interested, and was standing immediately behind Paul, the master starter yielded to the request, may we have our caps off, and then covered one after the other each little competitor's head, General McLeod made a hurried exclamation as the dark head before him was bared. Paul heard him, but had no time to look round, for with an are you ready? Are you ready? Off! The boys were started, blundering, tumbling, 
struggling up again, they rounded the opposite post, and came hopping in Polynesia first, as he touched the winning tape, his uplifted face beaming with pride, the old general turned white to the lips, and stretching out his trembling hand he laid it on the head of the laughing boy, and gasped uncertainly, Miguel Sereco, there was very earnest talk in the headmaster's study that night, between Dr. Rain and the general and Captain Ferrers, glad of a quiet hour at last, if I might suggest it, said Dr. Rain, you should tell your story first, general, it may throw light on small things, which otherwise may escape my friend Ferrers's notice and remembrance of all concerning this poor little child, I quite agree with you, and will reserve my story until after, and Captain Ferrers sat down, listening eagerly while the general began, I must go back many years. My wife, as you know, Rain, was of Portuguese descent, an ancestor of hers having married a senior in Lisbon. After the Peninsular War, she my wife inherited a little property there, and in some business connected with it I had met, at different times, a far distant connection of hers, Don Manuel Sereco, with whom I became fast friends. About fifteen years ago I received an urgent message to go to him at once. I traveled day and night, only to find him dying he had been mortally wounded in a duel. He knew me, and urged on me his last request, to take his two children and bring them up as my own in England. I hesitated, but his entreaties and the love I had for him prevailed, and I took on myself the charge. The eldest was a beautiful girl of seventeen, Miguel two years younger. They were wonderfully alike, only in the boy's case the raven black hair had a lot of white on one side. The Sereco streak, as it was proudly called, which appeared in the family generation after generation, I brought the children home with certain of their most cherished possessions, some fine riding horses, and a pair of curious dogs of Andalusian breed. My son, who as you know had joined the army, and having helped in the final subjugation of Burma, was then stationed at Mandalay, in command of native troops. I sent the boy Miguel to Harden and Inez rapidly picked up English at home. Two years later he returned, as he had obtained a year's leave. To make a long story short, he fell in love with Inez, and they were married before he returned to Burma. I ought to mention that, some months before, the addition of two fine puppies of the Andalusian stock had become the pride of our kennels. They were born the day of the wedding of the Princess Louise with the Duke of Fife, and were unanimously christened Fife and Louise. The dog I saw today was the same breed. When Hugh and Inez went away, Fife was an important part of the luggage. We went to see them on board, waving goodbyes as the vessel steamed away, and I never saw them again. The general's voice faltered and failed, but soon he resumed. You may perhaps remember the sad bathing accident at Harden School, of which no one quite knew the end. Miguel Sereca was one of the two boys drowned. His dog, Louise, had apparently tried to save him for their bodies were washed in together some hours after the accident. The boy had been the only young one left with us at Clare, he was the darling of us all. Judge, therefore, the shock I felt today when a face like his looked into mine, and his own dog apparently jumped as formerly round him. Inez was so shocked by the news that a change from Mandalay was suggested, and he obtained the command of Fort Sardu, one of the outpost stations in the Shan States. The decoyed attack on this fort you will remember. We were just rejoicing over a letter from Hugh, telling of the birth of a little son, when we were stunned by the ghastly news of the massacre of every living soul at Fort Sardu. I traveled out to Burma at once, 
hoping against hope, but all had perished, a sentry near the jungle alone, 